Hey everyone, welcome to the Prince of Peace podcast, where our aim is to help you live and love like Jesus. I'm Lauren Hlaud, one of the pastors of Prince of Peace. We're glad that you're here and we hope you enjoy. Good morning. There is no doubt that throughout the Gospel of Luke, generosity is a core theme for Jesus. Luke's Gospel is my favorite Gospel of of all four for many reasons. And, And one of those reasons is that generosity is a central theme. And this theme of generosity in Luke's Gospel takes on a more radical nature than in some of the other gospels. And it starts at the very beginning of Luke in the story of the the birth of Christ. Um, The birth narrative in Luke's gospel is unique because the angels that come and announce that this uh, Messiah, the the, the anointed one was being born, uh, they appear first to the shepherds out on the hillside, the, the lowly, um, the lowly common man who was working hard, a day laborer, those at the bottom of, of the rung societally are the first to hear about the Messiah King. Very different than Matthew's gospel. And all throughout, from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, uh, it's very clear in Luke that Jesus has come to set the prisoner free, to give sight to the blind, uh, to help the lame walk. And all of the teachings of Jesus throughout Luke could be read through the lens of generosity. It's not hard to piece it together that one of his central teachings in Luke is that God desires for us to live a generous life. To understand that everything we've been given is gift. It's gift from God. Even our ability to work and to labor and to earn an income is a gift from God. And if everything is gift from God, then Jesus makes it really clear throughout Luke that we are to steward those gifts responsibly. We're to tend to those gifts, not with an ownership mindset over them, but as a stewardship mindset that God gives us everything we have to share with a world in need. And if you have one of the Bibles like I have here um, that is a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus are written in red, uh, you'll notice that around Luke chapter 12 in this middle part of Luke's gospel, it is red page after red page after red page. Jesus is teaching He's teaching parables, he's sharing parables, he's he's teaching and instructing his disciples and in the middle of all of that teaching, a lot of which is about generosity, we find today's passage. And we're told that someone in the crowd who maybe was listening to some of these teachings from Jesus um, comes and interrupts his teaching. He has a burning question. It says that someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, why would somebody be coming to Jesus? This, at first glance, seems a little bit out of place, right? 
here's somebody who wants Jesus, a, a rabbi, a teacher, to settle a, a family dispute about money and possessions. But it actually was a very common practice at the time. Rabbis or religious teachers who had some religious authority were known to often settle uh, these sorts of arbitrations between families. Instead of going to a court or a magistrate, you would go to your local religious authority leader um, to settle family disputes. Now, I'm really glad this is not still the common practice. I, I do not want to get in the middle of your business with Aunt Betty over Grandma's China, okay? That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. But here, there's an issue. Now, we all know that um, in, in uh, this culture, in this time, that the firstborn son would have gotten a double portion or sometimes even a triple portion of the family inheritance, not to keep it all for himself. That's a really important note. It was more like the executor of the state. The firstborn did get a double portion of the lot, but they were entrusted with responsibilities to ensure that other siblings were cared for that they received their due portion. So here we have a dispute. The younger brother, we imagine, feels like he's being cut out of his fair share. And he comes and he's, he asks Jesus to please settle this dispute. Now, what Jesus responds with is very interesting. He, he warns them against greed. Now, you might first think that he's speaking this to the younger brother who wants his money, but, but we know he's addressing both of them. The plural is used here. So maybe he's warning the older brother or maybe both of them, maybe the entire family against the dangers of greed. He says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Be mindful of when you find yourself feeling greedy. But then Jesus goes on to tell a parable. And this parable at first glance I think makes a lot of simple sense to us, right? The parable is titled, The Rich Fool. He told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool. This night, your very soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich or generous toward God. Now at first glance, certainly Jesus here is teaching about the dangers of a greedy, selfish lifestyle, right? I find it interesting how in this parable, uh, Jesus paints this caricature of a wealthy man who's obsessed or concerned with all of his possessions. 
over and again, I will do this, my barns, my good. We see here that we can easily imagine here the, the little vignette of the, the wealthy man sitting in the mansion at a dinner table all alone, surrounded by gold and a table filled with food, but with no company, with no real meaning. Certainly we see this image all throughout society, don't we? We all know what it's like to imagine uh, the person who has accumulated worldly success, has a car filled, has a garage filled with exotic cars, has properties all over the world, has, has, accumulated, um, has accumulated so many beautiful, wonderful material things, but inside is hollow and empty and lonely and depressed. Certainly, wealth and the obsession with wealth can cause us to turn inward. But I don't think this parable is just about the dangers of an inward-turned life because of wealth. One of the most misquoted passages in all of Scripture is that the root of all evil is money. It's actually not quoted that way. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Why, why is this the case? Now certainly I think we know that the love of money presents a danger to us. And the danger is that we turn inward as Martin Luther taught. The danger of a, a sinful life is a life that is turned inward where we're gazing in on ourself. We are only concerned with self. And here in this parable, it's certainly the wealth and the accumulation of goods that make this man turn inward. The man never considers in the parable because of the rich, plentiful harvest of, of sharing that with those who have no food. There's no acknowledgement that all of this has come from God. It is my crops, my work, my barns. There's no recognition that all of this is gift from God. And if it's gift, then it should be shared. But there are other factors in this world that can also cause us to turn inward. Certainly, wealth is one that we need to watch out for. But this last week, I've been made aware that pain or suffering or disappointment can also cause us to turn inward. Now, right before the discipleship tour, that we took down to Asheville, North Carolina, the Friday before, I'm with our family at our local pool, and I decide to go off the diving board, right? Maybe you've noticed I'm sporting a, an accessory here today, this beautiful boot on my foot. We're there at the diving board, and there's a line of seven and eight-year-olds, five-year-olds jumping off the board, and I decide to be a fool myself and get in line for the diving board. And, and I looked over at the lifeguard sitting up in her chair. It was a hot afternoon. And I turned to these kids and I said, hey kids, watch this. Famous last words, right? I said, the lifeguard, do you see her? She looks too dry. She looks hot up in that chair. Do you think I can jump really big and splash her? Do you think I can get her wet? And all these little kids are cheering me on. Yes, you can do it, do it. Let's watch. So when it's my turn for the diving board, I run down the board and I take the big bounce 
to come down for the bigger bounce so that I can jump out and splash her. And when I come back down for that bigger bounce, crunch, something in my foot didn't feel right. I kind of toppled off the board, fell into the water. The lifeguard is completely dry and now I'm hurt. Becca comes over to me and says, you know, in a couple years, you'll be 40. I, I think it's time you stop trying to impress little kids. So my foot was not feeling great. I went to bed that night. I woke up the next morning, Saturday, and it was black and blue. It really did not look good. I didn't think I broke anything, but it certainly was a struggle to walk. I had to pack and get ready for the discipleship tour, leaving the next day on Sunday. I came to church sort of hobbling, and Matt Ritter, sitting in the back there, said, what happened to you? And I told him the story, and he said, I actually had injured my foot just a few days ago, too, on a diving board. It's better. I have a boot. Do you need a boot? I said, yeah, I I think I'll take the boot. Thank goodness I took the boot on the discipleship tour. All week long down in North Carolina, I, I wore this beautiful boot, and it really did help me get around. But, but all week, I didn't feel like myself. I was sort of having a pity party internally for myself. I love discipleship tours. I love our mission trips. I love trying to keep up with a bunch of high school students whose energy is contagious but I just didn't feel like myself. You probably know what it's like to be in pain physically or, or maybe due to aging, you, you struggle with the reality that I can't do what I want to do. And when that happens, sometimes we not just ache physically, we ache emotionally. And for me, it was a real struggle this week. Many of those days on the discipleship tour, I really just didn't want to be there. I loved being there, but I didn't feel fully present. And on one day in particular, I was assigned to go over to a a service site called Givens Great Laurels. And the Givens family, a a wealthy family from the region, had established a, a, a host of a series of retirement communities for very low income people. Uh, to be able to live in, in a beautiful setting. The Great Laurels Retirement Community was a beautiful retirement community where residents paid, I think, just $300 a month or less to live there. An absolutely gorgeous setting overlooking uh, the, some of the mountains in the region. Um, they had common areas. It was a beautiful site, and we were there to help beautify the place, clean up a hillside, or to go do little projects for some of the residents who lived there. And on this day in particular, I really didn't want to be there because my pain of my foot and my emotional just pity party had me turned inward on myself. Have you ever been in a place like that? You're not really present. You don't really want to give. So the students were divided up and we had a list there of projects that some of the residents needed done. Flipping mattresses, vacuuming, washing windows, filing paperwork, definitely not picking that one. And as I looked down the list, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit it, 
I picked the item that I thought would take the least amount of time. The smallest effort possible. Washing windows with Windex. I can do that, I thought. I'll get in and out of the room pretty quickly. I don't really feel like being here. So I took the the easiest task and I made my way to the elevator up to room 412. I knocked on the door, half praying that the person wasn't there so I could go back and just sit in my pity party. (laughs) But on the other side of the door, a little old lady answered. And as she opened the door, her apartment, her room, was filled with ornate art. Just art everywhere. And as I looked around, it it looked like familiar art. It, It looked like Haitian art. And then I saw a blanket to the side that said Jamaica, so I thought, well, maybe she's Jamaican. And, and so I asked her as I came in, I said, hey, I'm, I'm Lorne. I'm, I didn't even tell her I'm a pastor. I, I didn't want to have conversation. I didn't want to go in. I'm Lorne with the service group. You need windows washed? I'm here to wash your windows, thinking, I hope there's only two of them. And I walk in, and I, after a minute or so, I, I decided to, to ask her, are you from Jamaica? And she said, no, I'm... I'm from Haiti. And then I said, you're from Haiti? He said, I know Haiti. I love Haiti. I've been to Haiti multiple times. I, I chair the board of a nonprofit, the Haitian Tamoon Foundation, that's active in Haiti. And then I looked down at the shirt I was wearing that day. And I just happened that morning to put on a Haiti shirt. It had English words translated into Creole. I said, look at my shirt. She said, oh my goodness. We started speaking in Creole, my very poor Creole, to her very great Creole. And all of a sudden, because of this joy that she had for me being present and and being familiar to her own home country, I was washing those windows with, with great energy and great joy. And I said, do you have any other projects that you need? And And then she, because I was serving her generously, she poured me two glasses of strawberry lemonade. And we sat at her table and we talked for 45 minutes. I went from being turned inward to now experiencing the generosity of this woman who's pouring me lemonade glass after lemonade glass. And my whole spirit, my whole countenance changed. And this is what happens with generosity, isn't it? When we get beyond our inward-turned outlook, we begin to see that love and life and joy spread. The rest of the week was different for me. I still hobbled around. I, I still had moments that weren't that fun. But that was a really important set point in the week to remember to get beyond myself, my own pain, my own sorrow. Because let's face it, this boot is nothing compared to the countless people that our youth served in the greater Asheville area. An area that is, is, is marked by severe poverty, hunger. All week long, it was a good reminder every time I looked down at this boot that that instead of focusing on my own sorrow, my own pain, my own disappointment, to be turned outward toward others. 
I encourage you, if you know one of the young people who went on the trip, to find them, to ask them about their week and to ask them specifically how it is that they came to understand that generosity is contagious. Week after, day after day, moment after moment on the trip, there were signs and stories of that generosity spreading. You should be really proud of our young people here at Prince of Peace. They gave and they served with great passion. And their joy and their generosity was and is contagious. So this week, pray about how God might turn you inside out so that you too can be oriented toward the world. For this is what it means to live and love like Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Prince of Peace podcast. I hope that today's message has brought comfort and inspiration to your life. Have a great rest of the week.